And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Thursday, your turn, and today, your turn on Gordon Lightfoot. And hello there. Um, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago when we heard that Gordon Lightfoot was cancelling a number of upcoming concerts. Not just for the next couple of weeks, but for the next year. Concerts across Canada, concerts in parts of the United States. And when we heard that, I think we all realized that it must be something pretty serious to cancel for that far ahead. Basically all the concerts he had booked for the next year. Well, earlier this week we found out the reason. Uh, he was a death's door. And now he's passed and he's gone and we're left with the memories, the wonderful memories of uh, Gordon Lightfoot through his songs, through the lyrics, through the music that uh, play away in our heads, right? You hear the name Gordon Lightfoot you hear the songs. Well, got a lot of letters this week about Gordon Lightfoot. I'm, I'm just going to read a few because they, they tell stories, just the way he used to tell stories. Fortunately, we'll forever have Gordon Lightfoot with us because his music will live on, long past when we're around. His stories about Canada, his stories about life. Anyway, for this edition of uh, Your Turn, we're going to talk, for a few minutes anyway, about Gordon Lightfoot through your words, your thoughts. A reminder, uh, I get a lot of letters here every week. Um, I do read them all, but on the program I just read a selection and often I'll only read portions of of letters so we can get as many in as, uh, as possible, but also a good reflection of thought on a number of issues, and from across the country. I have some regular <laughs> writers um, who recognize that they're not going to get read every week um, on air, but they are going to get read by me, so I appreciate that. All right, let's get started. Um, the first letter comes from Iqaluit. From Joseph Murdoch Flowers. Thanks for the tribute to Gordon Lightfoot. In September of 2009, my uncle Stuart Mesher was terminally ill with cancer. With your interest in aviation, you might be interested to know that Uncle Stu was a pilot with Air Inuit and flew all over Nunavik for over 15 years. He trained in Cornwall in 1992 and stayed with Air Inuit until he was no longer able to fly. In his final days, Uncle Stuart wanted to meet Gordon Lightfoot. His brother, my late uncle, Bob Mesher, somehow arranged for Uncle Stuart to attend a small concert that Gordon Lightfoot gave in Hamilton, Ontario. I believe it was at a retirement home. Uncle Stuart's wish came true. 
Less than two weeks before he passed away, he met Gordon. He attached a couple of pictures. And there, you know, there's Gordon Lightfoot. And there's Gordon Lightfoot's guitar connected to a little speaker on the floor of that event, which reminded me of the story I told a couple of days ago about Gordon and the little speaker at Roy Thompson Hall, of all places, a few years ago at a special show that I was emceeing. Now, back to the letter. Now, Uncle Stewart, Uncle Bob, and Gordon are all gone. But their stories are with me, and I'm happy to share them with you and your audience. I miss them all. Well, they're, uh, they're all together now. And I wonder if Gordon took that little speaker with him. Mike Montague in Barrie, Ontario. I've seen countless stories following Gordon Lightfoot's passing this week of how he's touched so many people's lives. Here's one more I'd like to share. For the past three years, my father has been in long-term care at the Leacock Center in Aurelia, which cares for many residents in and around my father's and Gordon Lightfoot's age. During the day, you will find a number of the residents at the Leacock Center gathered in a large circle in an open area on the floor where staff can oversee. Occasionally, music is playing in the background and always the same sedating elevator music. A few months ago, I took a few long stored away CDs with me on my visit, hoping the staff might play them for the residents. They seemed happy for some variety and told me to go ahead and change up the music. I stood back and watched as Gordon Lightfoot's Sundown began to play. Among the residents quietly gathered, some feet began tapping and some heads started swaying back and forth to the music. One lady's hands began moving like she was conducting an orchestra. And George, a resident almost always smiling, though has never uttered a single word in my presence in three years, he suddenly shouted out, Gordy! The staff all looked astonished. It was quite a moment, revealing a lot about the mysterious power of music and memory, and Gordon Lightfoot's contributions to both for so many. Aside from the Beatles, it's hard to think of a group or an artist who has touched as many generations with their music as Gordon Lightfoot has. He will be missed. Well, that's an understatement, Mike. You sure will be, right? But what a wonderful story. And I think we could all capture that moment. Feet tapping, head swaying. The one lady with her hands moving with the music. God, my mother used to do that. When I read that line of yours, it just totally reminded me of my mom. And, of course, the person who had been silent for three years, at least in Mike's presence, suddenly shouting out, Gordy. 
Here's another one. This comes from Tyrell Bertram in Gladmar, Saskatchewan. I heard the Tuesday edition of the podcast where you talked about Gordon Lightfoot. And I just wanted to share with you my thoughts. I've been a fan of his since I was in high school. My English teacher used the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald in class. It's such a, such a wonderful ballad. You know, Gordon told me I was sitting in his house. This is me talking here for a second, just, just to interrupt this letter for a sec. I was sitting in Gordon's house. We were, we were doing one of my old one-on-one interview programs. And I wanted to talk about the Edmund Fitzgerald because it had always moved me a, a great deal. The story, first of all, and then, of course, the song. And I said, what? How did that happen? Like, like, how did you decide on that? And he said he was, he was at home reading Time magazine. And there was a small, on the week of the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, there was a small story in that week's edition of Time about the Edmund Fitzgerald. And he was intrigued by it. It happened on the Great Lakes, Lake Superior, big storm. And he said, I started investigating it and and reading as much as I could about it. And then I decided to write the song. So anyway, back to Tyrell's, Bertram's letter. My English teacher used the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald in class. I'm proud to say now that I, too, am an English and history teacher, that I use his music in my classes to bring Canadian culture into the classroom. With the songs The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and Canadian Railroad Trilogy. However, I did not know the origin story that you told and will use that going forward. That was the story of the Canadian Railroad Trilogy and how it was written in 1967 for the 100th anniversary of the country. In Saskatchewan, the first semester in grade 12 English is devoted to Canadian literature by Canadian authors. So I also use some Stomp and Tom music as well. I just hope that Gordon Lightfoot knew how important he was to Canadian culture and its people and the reach of his influence. As always, good work and take care. Tyrell Bertram. You know, it sounds like a great class that you teach, Tyrell, in Gladmar, Saskatchewan. And I hope those students grow up as you did to appreciate what you heard in class and take it forward. Those stories of Canadian music and Canadian culture and the greats like Gordon Lightfoot. Okay, moving on. Um, you know, a few weeks ago we talked about the CBC and the you know, debate around the future of the CBC, and I'm still getting letters about it. <laughs> you know, I, I probably said something about the audience for the bridge, that there are a lot of CBC, not only CBC loyalists, but people who grew up with the CBC who perhaps have you know, parted ways with the CBC for a variety of different reasons over the years. 
um, but that they still write about it uh, is great. Beth Matthews writes from Hubley, Nova Scotia. Near the, that's near Halifax. Hope it's not too late to comment on the CBC. I got hooked on the CBC when I was about 12, and my mother wouldn't let me change the channel on the kitchen radio. I remember mornings with Bruno Gerussi, Judy LaMarche, Don Heron, and of course, Peter Zosky. My first job was in Bay Verret, Newfoundland. After a year there, I finally found the CBC on the AM band and remember how I felt more connected. Recently, I've listened to CBC's local morning shows in different time zones, which you can do now, right? And it's amazing how one hears about what a, what's going on across the country. Today, I heard about an independent bookstore in Golden, B.C. It's all about stories and connections. It's worth it. <laughs> it's worth it to have a national public broadcaster, I think is what Beth is saying. Those are great names, right? Great names about our broadcast history, about our culture, you know, Jerusi and LaMarche and Heron, and of course, Peter Zosky. <laughs> he was the great one. Jonathan Young writes from Brussels, Belgium. I'm a native Nova Scotian living in Brussels, and I'm very much enjoying your podcast on a daily basis. Well, welcome to the uh, the Bridge Crowd, Jonathan. Glad to have you with us. And it's the wonderful thing about podcasts. You can connect from wherever you are in the world, and every week we seem to hear from different people in different parts of the world who listen to the Bridge. Your conversations regarding the institutions we have held in such high regard and we're reluctant to question, are not only needed but vital. Improvement in the delivery of services such as the CBC and the RCMP can only happen if a culture of self-examination and accountability are developed with an overall goal of providing what is in the best interests of society as a whole. There is a crack in everything. That's how light gets in, says Jonathan. Pamela McDermott writes from Burlington, Ontario. I really enjoyed your interview with Rick Mercer. That was on Monday of this week, and uh, a lot of people seem to have echoed that uh, feeling. If you haven't heard it yet, uh, just dial back to the, the Monday podcast. His story about people in Newfoundland cheering Polyev when he was um, going on about defunding the CBC rant is disheartening. I recently listened to a podcast about BBC and its importance as we come into an era of artificial intelligence. Now I have more trust in BBC than the CBC, but I still trust the CBC more than any other network run for profits and owned by corporations that have an interest in political outcomes. Maybe if the CBC had a budget somewhat in proportion to what the BBC has, it's nowhere near what the BBC has in proportion, it would attract more people with integrity and excellence to build it into a trustworthy source of factual information. As you know, journalism is one of the pillars of democracy. Let's use what the CBC has as a base and improve on it rather than destroying a platform that we may well need as the truth becomes more muddled by bad actors using AI. Well, isn't that the truth? 
Um, Edward Wan in Surrey, British Columbia. The CBC's role as a public broadcaster is ultimately the greatest of common goods. It provides journalists uh, service to all Canadians, especially those communities that are too remote or too niche to be served by profit-driven firms, while at the same time producing a consumer content that reflects the reality of Canadian life in its full diversity to those very same communities. This is a valuable goal that exists beyond pure profit determination, which could never be served private interests. And while there's a great deal of fair criticisms of the CBC, most notably its need to modernize, so much criticism of the CBC, both in its journalism as well as its cultural content, has been on account of its so-called left-wing bias or increasing wokeness, Two critiques that certainly are not fair at all. This is so-called bias is more than likely justified because issues from increasing immigration, LGBTQ plus acceptance, abortion, and climate change are no longer debated on air, but acknowledged as the norms and realities of modern society. These charges of bias and wokeness are grievances that are all too commonly used to disguise a real resistance, the inclusivity that has come to characterize mainstream Canadian society and to any attempts which seek to represent it. Good for you, Edward. Uh, As we always do each week, we have a number of comments about, guess who? The Random Ranter. Doug Moore of Nanus, BC, uh, was uh, driven to comment, given last week's uh, rant by the ranter, on uh, Joe Biden. The ranter basically says, it's time to pack it in, Joe. Um, You're too old, is what his argument was. His argument, the ranter's argument, right? So Doug writes, if a person has no health issues that impair their ability to function in the job, if they have the requisite education, training, and experience to carry out the duties of their job, then age should play no part in consideration of their suitability for a given position. Remember that John Glenn flew his last space mission as a payload specialist at the age of 77. Presumably, the ranter is much younger than Biden or Glenn. Perhaps he will change his views on aging when he himself is approaching 80. Uh, Barb Demeray in Vancouver. I just listened to the ranter talk about Joe Biden running for president at 80-plus. I have to agree with the points he brought up which is not to say people in their 80s can no longer contribute to society, not at all. I host a podcast aimed at baby boomers and just interviewed two authors of the book, Super Aging, How to Get Older Without Getting Old. They cite many examples of highly engaged and productive people who are well into their 80s. You're going to be one of them, Peter. (laughs) Thanks, Barb. I try not to think about that yet. But you're right. I will be. Rosanna Servi in Toronto.
Same topic. Seniors are not to be kept in rocking chairs in the corner of a home, crocheting or knitting their last few days away. Nor should seniors be forgotten in long-term facilities waiting for the next pandemic to take them out. By his own argument, should Pope Francis, age 86, retire? She's talking about the ranters' argument. I believe he last traveled to Sudan. When should have Queen Elizabeth II, who died at 96, retired? Charles III is about to have his coronation at age 73. Should he retire the next day? With his experience in politics, President Biden has become conditioned and well-seasoned for the physical and cognitive tasks that are required to run the United States. Four more years in the Oval Office will not only prove this to the ranter, but also provide society with a great mentor and role model for all of us as we become seniors. She adds a P.S. I really enjoy your podcast and all your guests, even the ranter. <laughs> um, here's one from Alex Godoy in Santiago, Chile. Another member of the worldwide audience of the bridge. Alex includes a picture. I don't know whether it's taken from his apartment or his condo or from a hill at the edge of uh, Santiago, but it's a spectacular picture of the downtown with the mountains in the background, the snow-capped mountains. Well, they're more than capped. They're, they're snow-drenched mountains. Spectacular picture, though. What does Alex have to say? He says, Some well-intended comments on the coronation might attract a wandering ranter to say a few words. Is there a ranter out there? I wonder. Ah, well. Well, Alex, just for you, and just because you included that spectacular picture, we do have the ranter on standby, ready and waiting. You know, that recent poll in Canada showed that 60% of Canadians think it's time to say goodbye to the monarchy. (laughs) Well, when you listen to this, you're sure going to (laughs) know who who, who one of those 60% is. Here we go. This week's rant from the Random Ranter. I think the whole royal family thing is largely done. And I don't want to waste any more time or thought on a family that amounts to just a British OG version of the Kardashians. I mean, let me sum it up like this. I read the royal family costs each and every Canadian the equivalent of a cup of coffee per year. Well, sorry, but I'll take an extra large with one cream, please. Because the royal family, they're nothing but a brand. And it's not a Canadian brand. It's a brand created by British imperialism. It's colonialism in a horse-drawn carriage. So for me, the question really isn't, should we ditch the royal family? It's, when are we going to ditch them? Because the writing is on the wall. At some point, we'll get our constitutional act together and get it done. Because the pendulum of public opinion is swinging and monarchist ranks are thinning. It's just a matter of time. 
But hey, I know there's people that like all the pomp, but I'm not one of them. I've got no use for ceremony, crowns, foot guards, beefeater costumes, or wearing whatever the hell vestments are. And I know I'm being harsh, but give me a break. For all the people out there that support our allegiance to the royals, I say maybe instead of looking back at the past, try looking ahead to the future, or even just look at your neighbor. I live between a Filipino family and an Ecuadorian couple. What difference does the royal family make to them? For that matter, what difference does it make to anyone? The royal family is nothing. They're just faces on our money. They have no power. They're just symbolic of a bygone era. And I get that. Countries need a symbol to rally around. But is the royal family really the right one for Canada? I don't think so. I think we need a new Canada filled with symbols that mean something to all of us. And those symbols should be forward looking because unlike British imperialism, the best for Canada, it's yet to come. To that end, I think we should turn Rideau Hall into a monarchy museum and 24 Sussex Drive. That mouse house of an embarrassment needs to be raised to the ground and replaced with something actually habitable and worthy of an elected head of state. I'm not talking a Canadian White House. I'm talking something better, something cutting edge, something that showcases not only the Canadian experience, but also Canadian architecture, Canadian materials, and Canadian know-how. Let's build something that we can all be proud of, something that represents every region and every people in Canada. My Filipino neighbors, they weren't born here, but they're every bit as Canadian as you or me. Let's give them something they can feel a connection to. And let's push the envelope. Let's make something not spectacularly opulent, but something that's spectacularly sustainable and spectacularly Canadian. Let's fill it with the best Canadian technology and the best Canadian art. Let's make it a 21st century showcase of just what we're capable of. Something that tells our unique story to the world. And you know, there's room in that story for the past, but let's face it, the past wasn't all red rosy. It left a lot to be desired. We have an opportunity to start something fresh. And if it's not now, it's soon. Because I don't think I'm alone in thinking that we can put all the British imperialism, all the palace intrigue, and all the royal BS behind us. We can build a future that's inclusive. We can build a Canada for everyone. And the place to start, I'm thinking it's 24 Sussex Drive. The random ranter for this week. Well, you know, we ask him to take a stand every week and then we'll react to it one way or the other. No doubt where he is on that one. I'm not there. I'm not 100% there. Um, you know, I, I, I've traditionally been a monarchist, I guess, because I've covered that family for so long. Um, had an opportunity to, you know, meet some of them, talk to some of them. And, uh, you know, the, for the most part, I've found the ones I've talked to anyway to be good people, including Charles. Um, however, I can tell the shifting mood on this issue of the monarchy, and I kind of get it. And listening to a lot of what uh, the ranter has to say, I, I can understand where some of those arguments come from. However... Um, 
I'm not 100% there yet, and I'm sure some of you aren't either, but I'm, I know I'm going to hear from you uh, one way or the other because people like to react to the ranter, and that's the whole idea behind the ranter. Is he throws something out there and provokes us to think about it. Um, I can read you a couple of things about the monarchy because they kind of relate in a way to what's just been said. My old friend David Oliver in Oak Bay, B.C., who's been a loyal listener to the bridge since uh, almost since the beginning, I think. David writes quite often, and occasionally I read some of his letters on the air, and this is one of them. David writes, you might want to give the new king a chance to prove himself before you write him off. People didn't have very high expectations of George VI when he was crowned. Not coronated, Peter. What were you thinking? That was a joke, David. After the charismatic and popular Edward VIII had abdicated, George VI came in, but he earned his loyalty, trust, even love during his reign. Apparently, some hard-bitten veterans of World War II were so grief-stricken on learning of his death, they burst into tears. This was 1952. I'm not saying Charles warrants that kind of feeling yet, but I've heard he's a compassionate person who takes his duty seriously, and he may prove to be a good king. That's right, you never know with these things, right? could be proved to be a good king, he could be proved to be a lousy king. We don't know. And so making judgments just based on how one feels about the king is probably not a good idea at this point. But in fairness, I don't think the ranchers rant was about Charles. It was about the monarchy as a whole and whether it's time has passed. He clearly thinks so. But David, your thoughts about give the guy a chance. Let's see what he can do. Let's see what he is like in this particular role that he has now become the king. And your thoughts are somewhat similar to... um, the Governor General's thoughts. She gave an interview, which I think will be airing tomorrow, or not tomorrow, on Saturday morning, on CBC's The House, on CBC Radio. And Catherine Cullen, the uh, host of The House, Catherine's had a terrific career. I remember when she was a local reporter in Montreal. Um, and occasionally her work would uh, come before the national, and you could tell this was somebody who has sort of got it, understands the job of a journalist, job of a reporter. And um, so Catherine fairly quickly moved up the ranks, became a national reporter, then a parliamentary correspondent. These were all with TV, and then uh, she's moved over to radio as the host of the House, extremely popular uh, CBC radio program and a podcast. Uh, that does well every week. Um, but the the GG Mary Simon on the program uh, this week will take a somewhat similar attitude that uh, is taken by uh, David Oliver in his letter. Give the guy a chance. Give Charles a chance. The GG recognizes that there are, you know, a fair number of Canadians, the majority it seems now, if you believe the polls, 
who feel it's time to end the monarchy's relationship with Canada. But the GG is saying, okay, I, pre- I understand that. I appreciate that. I've heard what they have to say. All I ask you now is to give Charles a chance. Let's see where this goes. And then we can make that decision at some later point. So the GG asking for calm on that. Okay, we've got a couple more letters left. Oh, I'm being... Whoa. The ranter, you know, he's always trying to get in the program. <laughs> um, we have a couple of more letters left, but we have to take our, our one break. And uh, when that's finished, we'll be back with your turn. Welcome back. You're listening to the uh, Thursday episode, Your Turn on the Bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, a couple more letters uh, to go here uh, for this week's edition of Your Turn. Uh, Wade Hall writes from Toronto, A growing or at least increasingly loud segment of society appear to be not only losing faith in institutions, but losing a sense that trust in institutions, rules, authorities, science, facts, has value in a society. Taken to its logical extent, this perspective yields a fragmented, ill-informed society and in time no society at all. Paradoxically, the apparent ease with which they hold these views are rooted in a privilege that concludes that they can say or do as they please with no cost to them or those they hold dear. It seems to me that the unacknowledged guarantor against costs at their expense is the very societal fabric to which they seem to assign no value. Cindy Kilpatrick in uh, Spruce Grove, Alberta. I know and have spoken to many people whom I'd rather not see vote. She's talking about mandatory voting. Not because our politics differ, but because I question their ability to assess the issues in an open way, either because they're not interested or because their sphere of influence is so narrow. I'm not even sure these people should be penalized for this. Some of these are very productive in their own way. I worry that when forced to go to the polls, that's mandatory voting, or there's a penalty, usually a fine of some kind. I worry that when forced to go to the polls, some may simply check the name they most recently heard mentioned or that's on the sign they saw on the way to the polling station. I do not for a moment believe that I am any more intelligent than others, but I do try to keep myself as broadly informed as possible, and I'm happy to say that your podcast, among others, helps me do that. I just can't see any positive side to making voting mandatory, but as on most topics, I'm open to potentially being persuaded. I'd be very interested in hearing about other jurisdictions like Australia that have imposed it and an assessment of how that's worked in those places. Okay, keep that in mind. Lee Rorabeck in Toronto. I really enjoyed hearing about Megan Boyd and her eccentric ways, particularly around her meeting Charles, looking for the perfect salmon flies, a story I told on uh, Monday. If you didn't hear it, I'm not going to repeat it now, but you should dial back and listen to the Monday 
beginning of the show. It's the Monday show with Rick Mercer, which was great. But the first couple of minutes, I talked about this amazing woman, Megan Boyd. Super cool that you saw the cottage in Scotland where she tied for decades. She was legendary. Sad to hear that it's in shambles, though. It reminded me of the wonderful book by Helen Humphreys, Machine Without Horses. Although it's a fictional story, Humphreys does an amazing job of exploring the real and imagined life of Megan Boyd as the preeminent salmon fly dresser in the world. The story of Charles coming to her cottage is also referenced in this book. I, that'll be a day I never forget going up to, uh, to her cottage and knowing her story. Yeah, I didn't know it before this latest trip to Scotland. I heard it when I was there, and I had to see the spot in which she lived, and she did her ties as she looked out on the North Sea. Spectacular place. The house, though, was a shambles now, as I said. Okay, going to close out today's show, not with a letter, but with an end bit sorts because these you'll know right away that these are the kind of stories that do have an impact on me and have always had an impact on me um stories of veterans stories of you know particular moments in past conflicts and stories of the passing of more than just a generation So this was on the Associated Press a couple of days ago. The headline is Ken Potts, one of the last two USS Arizona survivors, dies at the age of 102. So as I said, this is an AP story written by Audrey McAvoy. And the uh, dateline on it is uh, Honolulu. Ken Potts, one of the last two remaining survivors of the USS Arizona battleship, which sank during the 1941 Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, has died. He was 102. He died Friday at his home in Provo, Utah. It was a home he shared with his wife of 66 years. And his wife survives him today. So let me remind you of what we're talking about. Because this is one of our last links to that day at Pearl Harbor. One of our last links on the American side, certainly. Ken Potts was a crane operator shuttling supplies to the Arizona that morning of December 7th, 1941, when the attack happened. He told an oral history in 2020 that a loudspeaker ordered sailors back to their ships, so he got on a boat. When I got back to Pearl Harbor, the whole harbor was a fire, he said in an interview. The oil had leaked out and caught on fire and was burning. Dozens of ships either sank, capsized, or were damaged in the bombing of the Hawaii naval base. 
which catapulted the U.S. into World War II. Sailors were tossed or forced to jump into the oily muck below, and Potts and his fellow sailors pulled some to safety in their boat. The Arizona sank just nine minutes after being bombed. 1,177 died. There were double that overall in Pearl Harbor that day. Today, the battleship still sits where it sank eight decades ago, with more than 900 dead entombed inside. Potts recalled decades later that some people were still giving orders in the midst of the attack, but there was a lot of chaos. He carried his memories of the attack over the course of his long life. Even after I got out of the Navy, out in the open, and heard a siren, I'd shake, he said. There's only one survivor left now from the Arizona. His name's Lou Conter. He's 101, and he lives in California. Here's the last point. Several dozen survivors of the Arizona put in their wills that they wanted their ashes interred on the sunken battleship so they could join their shipmates. And that's what happened. But Potts, he didn't want that. He said, I got off the Arizona once. I'm not going back and boarding it again. So why do I like that story? Well, I like it because we should never forget. We should never forget what our veterans went through, what other veterans went through, especially those who survived those signature days. December 7th, 1941 was the day the Americans got into the war. Canadians... Brits, Australians, New Zealanders, French, others had been fighting for a couple of years before then. And the future hung in the balance. And on that day, December 7th, 41, when Ken Potts survived, was the day the Americans came into the war and the course of the war changed. Still took another... Three years, but it changed. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this day. Tomorrow, it's a good talk with uh, Chantal and Bruce. We'll try and we had some problems yesterday with uh, Bruce's audio. We fixed it up for the radio program and for the uh, uh, podcast yesterday, but for the um, YouTube channel, it uh, still had those hits on it. There's nothing you could do about that one. Um, so we, as we did, we apologize for that. But uh, hopefully, we could we'll get the internet gremlins out of the way for uh, tomorrow's uh, YouTube channel version of uh, of Good Talk. Uh, lots to talk about, obviously. Uh, tonight, Justin Trudeau speaks to his uh, Liberal Party. What's he going to say? What's he going to do to inspire them at a time when they're you know down slightly in the polls? and when there are open questions about whether or not he should stay as leader. 
We'll see how that goes. And obviously, we'll talk about that and other things tomorrow on Good Talk. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening today for your turn. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow.